Welcome to the Exploring the Core podcast. I'm your host, Greg Mullen. In this sixth episode, I'll be exploring a layer of my framework that's actually a very popular topic for teachers, a layer that looks specifically at competencies for social and emotional character development. It's celebrated in schools with various social and emotional learning programs, which I do talk about back in season one, episode four. But today I wanna talk about a specific organizing of concepts and skills that make up this layer of social emotional character development. Because I believe helping people develop these competencies directly supports our efforts to promote the kinds of values that I introduced in the last two episodes things like responsibility, respect, and trust. And that underneath those values are specific concepts and skills like emotional self-awareness and self-management and social awareness and relationship management. And there's been a lot of work done in this area by lots of different organizations. And having taken several courses myself and pouring over the literature from the past few decades, I'm excited to share with you the elements of this layer, which I introduce in the second half of this episode. Because the first half of this episode, I'll be highlighting the work of Liz Keeble, a success coach and social psychologist, helping students to achieve higher academic marks by developing in them social and emotional competencies. And as I share segments of our conversation, those that have listened to previous episodes may start to connect the layers I talk about in past episodes and how they play into how Liz talks about helping students, how she connects those layers of beliefs, of elements in their environment and values like responsibility, respect and trust, which all build on this inner layer of social and emotional character development. So stay with me as I celebrate the work of Liz Keeble and her social and emotional approach to academic success. Liz Keeble is a success coach and social psychologist helping students achieve higher grades by believing that they can. She works out of the greater Norwich area, a few hours drive northeast of London. And she agreed to speak with me about her experience as a student success coach. In particular, I was curious about her background and how exactly she defines her role as a success coach. I was interested in um, being able to help individual learners to learn. And it struck me that they were um, using the psychology and um, some of what had been labeled in the time I was teaching brain friendly learning techniques, uh, although I felt that, that we'd moved on a bit from that as well. Um, I just felt that working on a one-to-one -one with pupils would enable them to see things differently in a way that would enable them to make progress. So I made a point of um, uh, creating a pack, if you like, that has built up over the years of all kinds of activities that help um, children and young people get to know themselves as a learner they learn about how the brain actually works, physically what it does, and then also how it learns. Um, and then they start learning how they've got control over it. <laughs> Even something as simple as you cannot leave it at home. 
you know, you can't take it out and say to someone, can you look after this for me for the day, please? You have to take it with you wherever you go. And therefore you are responsible for it. So we kind of look at um, the ways in which they can physically be responsible for their own brain, but also we start looking at the psychology and the impact of the, um, of the subconscious and the, the way that it can, um, what's the word I want, um, kind of interfere emotionally with what the front end of your brain actually knows is the case. The emotional part of the brain can kick in and cause problems. But the, the main aim of it all is to help them believe in themselves, which is invariably what happens over this kind of about 12 weeks. I work with them on um, building that belief in themselves as a learner through a whole range of activities that I have in, in this pack that I've created. And these and are secondary students you're working with. Yes. Mostly. Yes. Yes. I have, I have worked in one or two private schools where the age range goes a bit further in either direction, but generally speaking, it's secondary. Um, so I, I kind of I sell it on the, the strap line, if you like, that, that, that their, their grades improve because they believe they can. Um, and an example of that is slightly extreme, but it's a good example is that I'm currently tutoring a young lady online for science um, who was getting uh, level twos in her in-house tests that they were doing in school in preparation for exams. And the last one, she got level eight which is a massive difference. And it's all come from her working with me for a few months, mostly on her confidence as well as her science. But I haven't taught her as much science as she would need to make that much difference. <laughs> so a lot of it is the, the belief, I can do this. I do know what I'm doing. I can learn. And it's about teaching the methods as well. So I, I teach them um, study skills and different ways of learning things that make them stick. We work on memory and how that works and how... They can learn things in a way that is more appealing to the way their mind works so that it, it sticks. Because although I'm not happy about the fact that they are examined <laughs> and the only way they can prove themselves is by passing exams, I'm not happy with that. But if that's the way they're being tested and that's the way they need to prove themselves, then that's what I need to help them with because I want them to be successful. So it's about getting them to that stage where they feel like a, a strong, independent learner who's taking responsibility for their own learning and can therefore impact on their own progress. They don't sit there like a victim waiting for stuff to happen to them or for them or for other people to make decisions for them about the way that they learn. I was still very curious about this title, Success Coach, and how Liz defines success as it relates to the students she's helping to learn how to learn. It seemed to me that regardless of how a student defines success, by focusing on social and emotional competencies, Liz could coach a student to achieve success, whatever that happened to mean for that student. Yes, yes, I don't define the success. And we, we do look at um, what the possibilities are for them in the future as well is one of the activities that I really enjoy doing with them is looking at um, what skills they have, you know, what inherent strengths they have, and therefore what kind of roles they'd be good at in the future. I was asked to work with a young man um, in a secondary school who was in his final year and um, right at the very point <laughs> of being completely excluded because they couldn't cope anymore with his behavior. Um, 
And so they pulled me in as kind of their last resort. And normally I do ask if, if I'm going to work with somebody, can I have them when they're younger, please, so that I can have a greater impact at an earlier age. But obviously this boy was 16 and kind of refusing to cooperate at school because of, because of past experiences. Um, and they were desperate to help him pass his exams and he was struggling with maths. So I was asked to actually tutor him for maths. But I said, can I, can I actually coach him in, you know, in all these other things at the same time? Because I think that's what he needs as much as he does the help with the maths. And it made such a difference. They were surprised that he even engaged with me. They presumed that he would run away and he wouldn't be there when I arrived. Um, but what I found just after two or three sessions of working with him on this idea of, of belief and, and the, on, on the, the strengths first side of things. So working at what he was good at. And I said, you've got these fantastic group of skills that in adult life are going to serve you really well. <laughs> I said, just at this precise moment, under these precise circumstances, <laughs> uh, you've got to get through this bit. But you, he could then see why he was struggling in school, why he was struggling with maths. But it made him determined to give it a go. And he turned out not to be as bad at maths as he thought he was once we got started on it. But it all came from this self-belief that he was a worthwhile person that he did have strengths that he was going to turn out okay in the end and this little hiatus here <laughs> just needed to be got through and and apparently I was the only person that he would respond to to get him through that which was but it's because of the the, the way I approached it I think. Now this was actually a very curious point this idea of bringing someone in from the outside of a student's environment to work with them in cases where Nothing a school has tried has worked so far. So I asked Liz whether she felt it was helpful to bring someone from the outside in to work with students or whether she felt teachers, parents, or even administrators could take on this role of reaching students the way she does in the environments that already exist for those students. Yeah, I, I think I think there is both sides to the coin. I think, yes, bringing in somebody from the outside is important because they have no preconceived ideas of what, who this person is. Um, in fact, when I work with youngsters in school, they I make a point of not asking questions. I don't want to know too much about the history of, of each individual student because then I can come with no preconceived ideas um, and can can build on what. I find when I'm working with them rather than on any kind of, of history. Um, but in fact, I think I think you've hit on something there that other other educators could learn to do what I do. Um, I mean, it's successful because there's kind of years of experience and and psychology. I mean, the, the way you say things and how you respond to them is all really important. So as long as somebody could learn to do that and create the right kind of trusting environment that you need, um, then, yes, I, other educators could could do. And that, that's one of the things I'm looking at, actually, in the future is training other educators to be able to do what I do because I'm not going to be around forever. <laughs> So I think that's um, I'm, I'm looking at kind of creating my pack that's been for my personal use up until now into a kind of a um, something that other people could take and use with a bit of training so that, that they can have the same impact, really. What Liz said had me thinking about my own experience as an elementary and middle school classroom teacher and how I had known very little about building trust 
it seems like kind of a no-brainer, common sense thing to just know how to build trust with people. But it took me years to really understand what it meant to develop the kind of teacher-student relationship that not only bred that trust, but eventually was bred through a more self-directed classroom environment. I asked Liz about her own experience as a classroom teacher. Liz actually became a school teacher after her experience homeschooling her two children. And I was curious about how she felt about the differences between homeschooling and school teaching. Um, the differences, there's one or two obvious differences. The, um, in, in a school, obviously, you've got the benefit, particularly in science, of all the equipment that you don't have at home. You know, you can't do experiments. Um, so you have a lot more in the way of resources. But as you said, there are restrictions there. There's, there's not so much freedom. And one of the things I found that hampered me <laughs> was, was a very, um, what's the word, traditional head of department who was not happy with some of the methods that I was attempting to introduce, despite the fact I had extra training. I had asked for the training in the brain-friendly learning techniques um, and had even been sent to Birmingham to work with a neuroscientist to bring back um, ways of teaching that I was cascading to other staff. I was helping train other staff, um, but my head of department didn't like me using them in my classroom. He wanted everybody in their seats and in rows and being quiet and not kind of <laughs> moving around in some of the ways that, that, I'll give you an example. When, when they needed to do energy transfer, we made popcorn. <laughs> they could physically see, <laughs> see the, the energy transfer. Um, and when we were doing, uh, fiber optics or the, they they were expected to know how an endoscope works so and yet they couldn't fully understand how it worked so I took in my fiber optic lamp and we stood in the dark stroking this lamp and watching the lights and discussing how the lights were how, how that was working and I was always being told off by my I made friends with the deputy head who is still a friend and mentor to this day all these years later um, I'd walk into school with bags of stuff and say, will you stop bringing everything you've got from home? <laughs> but again, because they were resources that I felt I needed to, to make the point in a more effective way that I was bringing in from home. So, you know, there's some crossover there between the benefits of homeschooling and the benefits of being in school. I know some people who teach at home say they find the whole scheduling a bit difficult, you know, that kind of having a routine and sticking to it. Uh, but we never had a problem with that. I have to say we had a daily routine and we stuck to it and, and um, that wasn't an issue for me. But you, but you can see there's a kind of I'm, I'm I feel comfortable in both settings. You know, I, I love the idea of homeschooling. I was happy as a teacher. I loved teaching. So I was perfectly happy in the classroom. Um, but it wouldn't stop me going back to homeschooling again if I now had, had children again. Another question I ask Liz is how she has motivated teachers to approach students the way she does as a success coach. I appreciated how positive she was and how teachers have reacted to her work and was not surprised to hear Liz talk about a particular obstacle that teachers face when they take what Liz teaches them back to their schools. Yes, um, I mean, thinking back to a few years ago when I worked for an education partnership and uh, part of my role was um, encouraging teachers to use um, 
improve techniques for teaching and learning. Um, I found a lot of enthusiasm um, among the teachers, but what I did find is that while I was with them and while we were talking about it and while they were receiving training from me, they were very excited, couldn't wait to get back in the classroom and try it out. But somehow, after a short period of time, it all kind of went quiet because the system kind of wouldn't allow for that level of freedom. Um, so it kind of, it, it, I found that as well with training um training staff over the years is that is what tends to happen is that the, the 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 desire is there the enthusiasm is there but it's just too much <laughs> um with with all the other pressures that they have on them so it, i think there's a there's a still room for improvement there as a school teacher myself i'm well aware of the other pressures we face and as teachers and the many expectations to give exams and, and report grades as part of this really, this larger system of, of oversight and accountability for student learning, which to me has always seemed to be separate from the actual process of learning. And so I asked Liz about her thoughts on that part of the system specific to student exams and what she's noticed about student learning with regards to this increasing demand for testing and reporting yeah i think the first major thing is that i'm not saying this applies to every student but a lot of students go to school because they have to they go to school um in order to receive the education and therefore from within themselves without it being explicit they kind of feel that schooling is something that's being done to them so that they're not really a part of it. So it's looking at that from the teacher's perspective, it's almost like a teacher is throwing stuff out there and waiting for it to stick <laughs> to students who are not actually engaging with it. So I think that the first thing that I try and point out is I, I actually, I often start a piece of training or a talk to teachers with the idea of forgetting what it is they're actually looking at. That when, when we are talking to a group of students, we're seeing their faces, bless them, <laughs> lovely little faces getting ready to learn, um, or their physical um, demeanour or behaviour in the classroom. And that's what we engage with is their face and their demeanour and their behaviour, etc. But that's not actually what we're engaging with. We're engaging with what's inside here, inside the brain. So I get the first exercise I get them doing is, is eliminating the whole body thing and picturing a load of floating brains. So that we're in a classroom. That's what you're engaging with is all those brains, nothing else. So you've got to see past everything else and kind of almost get inside the head of the student and from then on, the important thing for me is that the students learn to get inside their own heads <laughs> so that they are not um, what's the word, kind of just recipients of information. That, that it's Because learning doesn't actually take place unless you have an experience. The brain is designed to learn from experience. So just throwing information, either talking at somebody or showing them things, is all well and good, but unless their brain actually engages with it, there's absolutely no learning taking place whatsoever. And that's one of the reasons why so many youngsters, it's not just a memory thing. It's not just about them being able to recall it. It's just that it, it, never, it never had an impact 
impact on their minds in the first place. So they're not registering it. So it means that that information has to be presented in a, a way that engages the mind and therefore becomes memorable and can be grown into something that's even more memorable because of things like um, practice, for instance. I always teach youngsters about the physical impact on their brain of practice, which is if you can make a single memory trace from doing something once, but it will just fizzle out and disappear unless you strengthen it. And therefore, in repeating something, doing it again and again, And then, in fact, what happens if the brain registers that's something important, it will coat it in a substance called myelin, which makes it permanent, a bit like putting tarmac down on the road. And then you'll never forget it. (laughs) But I think a lot of youngsters come to learning feeling they should already know it. And then when they struggle with it, they they kind of back off because it's too challenging because they don't know it. Um, and then when they have got it, it's such a relief that they then don't practice it. They don't see the need for any repetition. Um, and so it all gets lost. And I think if if learners understood their own minds better, they would make better use of it. They would take responsibility for their learning. Um, and then they will start making progress because it's not something that's being done to them. It's something they're doing for themselves. I love this idea of teaching students about how their own brains work how learning happens, how their own actions have consequences beyond the stickers and the points they receive from teachers who themselves are receiving pressure from that larger system of oversight and accountability. Well, I asked Liz what her thoughts were on the importance of parents and building a shared understanding of teaching and learning with teachers, whether programs that promote what she's teaching about how humans learn might benefit parents and allow them to have their own learning personalized in order to understand themselves, how they learn, in addition to understanding how their child learns, and whether she feels this might actually be a good approach for schools to explore. I think that would be a really good approach. You've suddenly made me decide what it is I should be working on next. Thank you. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I I think I don't know how involved parents are in schooling under normal circumstances in the US. Um, Over here, they have more influence at primary level. um, But once the child goes into secondary school, there's there's very little involvement from parents at all. Um, And I think it would be a really good idea for parents to be more involved. Um, I think particularly at the moment, parents are thinking more about schooling because they are having to do it themselves at home. Um, I've, I'm, I'm posting on LinkedIn at the moment uh, kind of suggestions to help them with the kind of psychology behind doing that because it, it's, not, it's not easy. And I think that the first point I tried to make was the fact that a lot of Uh, parents once their children go off to school lose sight of the fact that they taught their children for the first five years of their life (laughs) and and probably did a good job of it and so they they have already taught their child a huge amount before they ever go off to school and they somehow kind of hand responsibility over to the teachers and forget their own role in it Um, and I don't think that's the parents fault I think that is again how the system is set up you know give us your children we'll take it from here and in fact there's some resistance if you like almost to any kind of interference isn't there from outside so um i think there should be more of a um 
an exchange, if you like, at all ages between schools and parents so that so that the there is then a joint role, you know, get, getting that youngster to a point where um, they they are able to stand on their own two feet, as it were, educationally, emotionally and, and every how else. Uh, it's a joint working between the parents and the home life and, and the school. They spend you know, large amounts of time in both. So um, I don't think they should be as separate as they are. I think there should be a lot more crossover and that will require some changes in the way the system works and um i i don't personally know at the moment i'm not saying they're not there of any um support for parents in that in kind of becoming more familiar with with having a kind of teaching educational role for their child um but which is something i'm prepared to take a look at because <laughs> if enough people are interested that's that sounds like something worth doing and that would interest me because of of linking all these different roles that i've had over the years we'd all kind of come together in one i used to train um people who ran parenting programs who needed the facilitation skills if you like they they knew the content they knew the parenting but they didn't really have the skills to run a group so I was kind of training them with the, with the um, facilitation skills but um, there is still crossover even there between uh, parents and teachers because you've got parents who whose main concern seems to be behavioral issues you know, what do I do when when the child does this but teachers are the same you know the, the teachers that kind of classroom management is very much about the behavior in the classroom and so they're kind of they're both um, both sets of people if you like are dealing with similar issues just one in school and one out of school so um I think there's some room for even for some training together for teachers and parents. I, I, I had a friend who was until she retired was really interested in um, getting together um, schools and parents and the student kind of as a as a threesome, if you like, to kind of cement stuff for the for the student. And she was interested in running courses that would kind of pull all, all that together, but that never really got off the ground. And I said, I don't know. I, I, I'm, doesn't mean it's not happening, but I don't know of anybody who's successfully doing that at the moment. And it may be that we're at that point in history now where that should be something that's happening. Now, I bring up with Liz the fact that many parents don't know what questions to ask their children's teachers to get this process started. Many simply just don't have the time, even if they did know what to ask. And how teachers themselves, they barely have time to connect with their own administrators, let alone so many parents. And that administrators, too, they often have to limit their time that they spend with parents in the community, which shows how Every adult involved in this schooling process is already stretched so thin. I ask Liz about the possibility of a school being the center of a community beyond just handling this responsibility for academic learning. And whether a school being a center or hub, something to give people the time to connect and learn about themselves and each other, even if that means incorporating social services into the schools, which a quick map search online will show, are already littered across every community. Yeah, it, it reminded me of something we had in the UK a few years ago. Um, I was trying to think which role I was in at the time. <laughs> 
<laughs> there's been so many of them. Um, I think it was it was when I was um, development manager for the parenting strategy in a, a local town here, and um, at the time, the, both locally and nationally, um, there was a new project called Full Service Schools. And it was along the lines that you were just talking about, where the school was kind of supposed to become the hub or the centre of a community and would a lot of stuff would happen in the school, physically within the school as a building to get the community in. Um, and I, I remember one head teacher, um, I, I talked to all the head teachers at the time because I held the budget for all their, their out of hours programs. So you know, they were all really nice to me. I got cups of tea and shortbread biscuits everywhere I went because I had their budget. Um, but they, one of the head teachers was very proud of the fact that his school was open 365 days a year because they even had like a, a, a Christmas service in the school on Christmas Day. So you know, he was really proud of that fact. Um, and I'm not quite sure why that, I don't think there's that same feel anymore. I think it was something that the government put money into. And then as with a lot of the projects I've been involved in, the, the funding comes to an end. And then the good that has been done with that funding kind of dies with it until the next lot of funding takes it somewhere else. So, um, so it's been done um, and more successfully in some areas than others, I think. But I do think there is the need for um, schools to be more open. I, I think they feel that if they cater for every individual parent saying, well, I want this for my child, I want this, they, they kind of, they're going to go crazy trying to, trying to fulfil all the desires of everybody. So they just hold their hands up and go, no, we're, we're not going to go there. Um, but I think if it was done gradually and carefully and with everybody's um, cooperation, that they could, you know, we, we could make slight inroads and just hopefully something would grow from that. It's not going to happen overnight. Now, my final question for Liz was with regards to this larger idea of self-directed schooling, placing the emphasis of learning for learning on the students and families themselves by creating a more egalitarian school structure where the students involve their families in their own learning for which the school can serve as a resource so that the authority and responsibility is shared with the family rather than hand it off from parent to teacher so that each family can personalize their child's learning and utilize the school as they feel is in the best interest of their child. It's difficult because I think we need the shift, which may come um, from what I unfortunately work at now, this idea of helping youngsters to pass their exams because that's how they're going to be tested. That's the only reason I do it that way is because that's what's needed. I want them to be successful and that's unfortunately how they're going to have to prove themselves. Um, but if we, if, we, if we were able to shift more to um, provision, which in fact in, um, in this country has happened more recently in the, the um, I think it was 2019, might have been end of 1819, um, the um, inspectorate for schools uh, put out a new document where they said that they, from the inspection point of view, they are not going to be inspecting 
um, so much what the school results are, which has been the big drive over recent years, is what results they're getting, what grades are the, are the youngsters getting in their exams. And they're now going to take a closer look at the quality of what provision a school is making so that the youngsters have got more opportunities, if you like. And they're now talking about personal development, which I'm kind of cheering at (laughs) personal development is what i what i do really that's you know although it's in within education it's still personal development so i'm kind of hoping that 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 shift in focus is going to um kind of bring about a, a more personal curriculum um but how we actually then link that with parents and families i'm not sure i think we just mustn't lose sight of it I think it it kind of it requires a lot of conversations like this one. And I, I've heard conversations like this one. You know, everybody's well, not everybody. So many people are interested in making a shift Excellent. Um, that we just kind of need to keep having the conversations. And if the, the more of us that are trying to make a difference and the more of us that are trying to influence what's going on, the more likely it is that stuff will happen. I'd like to thank Liz for taking the time to speak with me on so many issues related to education. And for those of you who want to learn more about Liz and her work, you can visit LizKeeble.com. Now, when I return, I'll briefly review a unique structure for organizing social and emotional competencies as part of this framework for exploring who we are and how we learn. In this larger framework for who we are and how we learn, I include in this layer of social emotional character development three components or domains, which I've organized into smaller pieces. And as I briefly describe these three domains, consider which pieces sound familiar, which you might think are more or less valuable to you, and which seem to be new to you altogether. The first of these three components has to do with self-awareness and management. It's about recognizing and developing a capacity to manage your emotions, to set goals and monitor progress, and celebrate the self-improvements you make over time. The second component has to do with social awareness and relationships, recognizing and developing the capacity to identify how people think and feel differently. It's knowing when and how to communicate in a variety of different contexts and settings. And it's also practicing de-escalation techniques that can resolve various different kinds of conflicts. The third component involves an awareness of how we as humans develop our sense of societal responsibility as global citizens and develop a moral or ethical obligation beyond that of basic law and order as individuals and groups who interact with communities big and small, locally and globally. Now, over the years, I've spoken with a number of parents and teachers about these ideas, and the general consensus is that we know that all of these concepts and skills are not being taught to children. And it's not because parents and teachers collectively aren't doing their jobs. It's that we as adults, as the teachers, as the parents, we simply weren't taught these concepts and skills at a young age and did not have these ideas explained to us during our formative years when we were forming integral beliefs about ourselves and each other. 
adults who I've spoken to generally agree, it is important to teach social and emotional competencies. And we generally want to help develop those competencies in our children, but there isn't yet a consensus among us as the adults who are part of our children's lives as to what these competencies are and as adults are hesitant to have to relearn what we've spent a lifetime figuring out. And what I mean by that is that a lot of these ideas were only just published a generation or two ago. So for many people, and this has been the case with many people I talked to about this, what adults learned by chance from whoever happened to be in their life growing up is generally seen as good enough for helping them deal with conflicts and concerns today now that they're adults. We've actually developed our identity to include those lessons we learned from those we looked up to when we were younger. And from those experiences, we shaped our worldview. So to challenge the lessons we learned in those formative years is to challenge how we might still be managing our emotions as adults with strategies that might not actually match the emotions we're expressing appropriate for the context and situations we're experiencing. And for many of us, we simply don't have the time or the energy to make the kinds of changes to these beliefs about how to cope with the kinds of challenges we face in our lives. And when we then see our children experiencing conflicts and concerns in their lives, we figure they'll be fine because they'll likely figure out how to deal with their emotions the same way we did with whoever happens to be around when they need to learn those valuable lessons. Unfortunately, history has shown that not all adults develop healthy emotional coping strategies and social skills. And with everything we know today about how the brain works and how it isn't that a person never changes, the story is actually the opposite. A person's brain can literally adapt to its environment, as can a person's behaviors. But only if we accept that these competencies in this layer are important enough for us to explore, to adopt, and to adapt to our own particular goals and situations. And this is where I believe schools can be a catalyst for change by inviting their families to create a shared vision and language that embraces this idea that it isn't just children who need to develop these competencies, that teachers must internalize these ideas as part of a shared language, a shared understanding, and be able to model and coach their students both in and out of the schooling environment. And that parents too must also recognize and support the development of these competencies such that their children can see these competencies reflected in those they value in their communities. But there's a catch to all of this which might not come to be much of a surprise. And as a school teacher myself, I want to acknowledge that it does take a lot of time and energy to just maintain the status quo, to keep the ship rowing the way it already is. And that change is often met with concerns over time constraints, resources, and energy. And that implementing a social and emotional learning program as an additional 30 minute lesson each week or scheduled extracurricular activities is often seen as being placed on top of the already overburdened school schedule for teachers, 
for the students, and for their parents. But we must not see social and emotional competencies as something teachers add to their plate. Instead, we must see it as the plate itself. Social and emotional competencies, they're not concepts we learn in addition to academics. These competencies are the behaviors that reflect the values we're already promoting in schools and in our communities. They're in the behaviors that promote the kind of self-reliance, self-reflection, and the self-directed approach to problem solving and critical thinking that we want to see in our students, in our children. But it has to start with us wanting to see this in our own selves and our own relationships. That's why I believe this layer is key for understanding who we are and how we learn. It's the layer underneath the values we perceive, the elements of our environment and the beliefs we hold. And as I continue in the next episode, we'll see how specific ranges of behaviors feed these capacities to develop social and emotional competencies in different ways. And the more we really start to connect this layer of competencies to those outer layers of this framework, the more willing we might be to consider that our own understanding of our own coping mechanisms may or may not be working for us, but perhaps more importantly, that they might not be working in ways that are helping you meet those larger goals in those outer layers of values, elements of an environment, the beliefs you hold about what you think school and learning ought to be. It brings to mind the popular quote, actually. Uh, they say, be the change you want to see in the world. And I believe this layer of social emotional character development is crucial to helping us become that change. Now, as I bring this episode to a close, I'd like to revisit the idea I introduced in the second season's introductory episode of Capturing a Rainbow. These competencies that I discussed in this episode, they're not in themselves an explanation for who we are and how we learn. The topics and all of the people throughout this second season are all part of the environment responsible for that metaphorical rainbow. The question to ask is not how this episode answers all our questions about who we are and how we learn, but how the ideas presented connect with the ideas in the other episodes to help us understand individuals and groups in a way that's meaningful to you and your various communities, both big and small. So I hope you're enjoying this second season and I thank you for listening. Talk to you next time. <laughs>